don't you think? Yeah. Looks like the winds are changing. Ah, change is good. Yeah, but it's not easy. I know what I have to do, but going back means I'll have to face my past. I've been running from it for so long. Ow! Jeez, what was that for? It doesn't matter. It's in the past. <laughs> yeah, but it still hurts. Oh, yes, the past can't hurt. But the way I see it, you can either run from it or learn from it. Ah, you see? So what are you going to do? First, I'm going to take your stick. No, 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 not your stick. Hey, where are you going? I'm going back. Good. Go on, get out of here. <laughs> Okay, that's the message. Goodbye, everybody. Good morning, everybody. The Bible, in a couple different occasions, refers to Satan's schemes. Just the word scheme has with it the connotation of some devious mastermind plan to do something clever or dishonest. Scheme is the word. So if we want to take Scripture seriously, it's important to note that Satan, our enemy does have plans and plots against us. Now, even as I say that, I don't even understand the magnitude of it or how it works in terms of demonic hierarchy. But in the end, I think that Satan has schemes and plots and plans to sabotage us. And so this is what we read in Scripture. Dr. Evil, just now get a bear. That's scheme. That's what I mean by scheme. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Now, Paul is talking about forgiving an individual, like to forgive that man in the church. And he says this, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Or in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul will say this, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, here's what I'd say. You should pray against the plots and plans and schemes that Satan might have. Pray that they're nullified in the name of Jesus and become void and do not come to pass. And you should pray that not only over yourself, but over your children, your spouse, your family, your pastor, those that you love. Listen, I'm not interested in having an unhealthy interest in Satan's schemes. And I would say if you're more interested in things like spiritual warfare, satanic schemes, and the demonic more than the person of Jesus, you've probably tipped over into that place that's unhealthy. But having said that, I don't want us to be stupid or naive. If Satan has common schemes by which to devour us or to steal, kill, and destroy the abundant life that we know Jesus wants to give us, then we want to know what those are. We want to be wise when it comes to Satan's schemes. And so this morning I want to share with you a very common scheme of Satan that he uses to keep us from the life that Jesus desires for us. And it has to do with our past and this idea of living in a clear history. So we've been talking about two weeks now, and if you've missed the last two weeks, I really do want to encourage you to go online and listen to the podcast. But this morning, as we kind of wrap up this message series, I want to talk about a very common scheme of Satan that takes us back to the past in such a way that sabotages our ability to walk in the clear history that Jesus wants for us. What I've come to realize is that many of us have ongoing messages that play in our head. And I'm not talking about just like 
voices that we're hearing in our head. That might be an entirely different matter altogether. But what I'm talking about is like a very powerful mixtape that life has handed you that keeps playing over and over and over. You know what I mean by a mixtape, right? You know it, right? I know I'm dating myself here, but like playlists today are not the same as mixtapes back in my day. Like when your girlfriend handed you that cassette tape and it had all of your songs on it, like that was a that was a big deal. Or when you made one for a girl, you know that you were going to a whole other level in regards to your relationship. And what I'm saying is your entirety of your entire life has handed you a mixtape that continues to play. And it's a powerful one. And it's played for most of us so long that we almost become unaware that it's going on in the background. And it radiates at such subconscious levels. And it just feels like this is who we are. Meaning that that mixtape is helping to set for us identity. And this is, for me, why parenting is so daunting. Like, I recognize right now that my three kids, Isaac, Caleb, and Alex, will maybe one day be sitting in front of a therapist trying to unpack the mixtape that was handed to them, whether I ever intended to or not, from their father. And so you hear the stories that therapists can share in terms of, yeah, unpacking these sorts of things about the little girl who's petrified to sing in front of anyone. But in reality, she has a beautiful voice. And she loves song, and she wants to sing, but all of her life she has hidden her voice in the midst of her insecurities and denied what is for her a great love and a source of enjoyment. And the reason why is because one night, as she was just singing and singing and singing, which she normally did, always did, her mother was suffering from a huge migraine. You know that that where light hurts, everything hurts. It's just that pounding and pounding. It's almost when you get to some point in the migraine, you're not even yourself anymore. You're just so full of just pain and just in it, all the things that come with it. And just in the midst of the singing, it just started to build and build and build. And out of nowhere, the mother just explodes in her own pain, screaming at her daughter to stop singing, that her voice is ugly and she can't take it anymore. She doesn't mean it. And she has no idea even what she has said, what's happened. But what happens is that message gets attached to a mixtape that plays in that little girl's mind and heart. And she replays it over and over again. All she knows is her voice is ugly, her voice is ugly, and it moves her into a place that sets identity. Or maybe others of you have that mixtape because some other things were said to you. And and oftentimes, nobody means anything by it. It's not intended. Sometimes it's even supposed to be endearing, but it just plays where you're labeled as, you're the smart one. And then you've got to interpret what that means. I'm the smart one, meaning in contrast to my brother that, what, I'm not the athletic one. And in in contrast to my youngest sister, I'm not the the good-looking one. And so what happens is it begins to, it plays in your mind over and over again. And it sets an identity in ways that maybe no one ever intended. Or maybe you got labeled as the pretty one. That was a huge problem for me growing up. And it just plays over. No, I'm just kidding. Or maybe you heard this continually. You're just like your father. But you knew when your mother said that about her ex-husband, your dad, it was not a positive thing in her mouth. Or maybe you were told by the stepfather that you're never going to amount to anything or you're the screw-up or you're a failure or you'd be lucky if anyone would want to marry you. And sometimes then we even fill in the gaps of our mixtapes Our parents might not have ever explicitly said the following, but we're confident based on their actions and behaviors and attitudes that they're true. Things like, I wish you were the one who died instead of your older brother. Or if I could go back and do it all over again, I would never, ever have you. 
or you're the family screw-up. I know girls who have suffered for years with eating disorders, and when they unpack when that actually began or how it took place, it's usually over something that seems so, really, it's so trivial, just sort of like an offhanded, somebody was teasing and called them fat, and for whatever reason, it just stuck in such a way into their soul that it triggered years of an eating disorder. Why? It's that mixtape that goes over and over and over your fat. This is why James will tell us, yeah, what comes out of our mouth matters. There's a huge power that we have in our tongue. He'll say this in James 3, 5, and 6. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. In fact, consider what a great forest is set on fire by such a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And he'll go on to about who could tame the tongue. I mean, it's just this, I mean, it's the power of yeah, what we say out loud, even if we don't mean to at times, has the power to affect somebody else in such a way that Satan then grabs a hold of it and uses it in a life mixtape that sets identity. And we all have these tapes playing in our head to some extent. And one of the schemes of Satan is to let them set the narrative of our lives in such a way that it becomes our identity. And that's why it's so difficult to walk in a clear history. This is why it's difficult to move into the freedom that Jesus' grace gives to us. Because as soon as we give our lives to Jesus and receive his forgiveness or his complete washing, a reset button, a clean slate, which is what we've been talking about over the last two weeks, Satan comes right along right next to it and goes, wait a minute. I mean, that's all well and good, but let's not forget. And then he plays that old tape in your head that takes you back to that old life or to your past or that sin. And rewinds that tape and plays it for you, hoping to sabotage the new identity that Jesus wants to give to you. And he'll come in and say things like, you know you're a convicted felon, right? I mean, don't you remember the night of the crime? The looks on their faces, what you did? In fact, in this whole room, I bet you're the only convicted felon here. You, you really don't think God's just going to forget about your past, right? You're a felon. And if you don't believe me, just look what happens every time you fill out a job application or a housing application, and you'll know that you are a convicted felon. And you think God's really just going to forgive you for those things? He just plays over and over. And it sets identity. I'm a convicted felon. Or he'll come and he'll say things like this. You know you're dirty, right? Like you're stained. You're impure. Don't... Don't you even remember that illustration that you saw that your youth pastor did that one time where he's talking about sexual morality and he passed around that rose to everybody and had them touch the petals and then when it came back, it was all ruined and messed up and he made the point that that's what sexual morality does to you. It makes you ruined and impure in those particular ways and, well, because of what you did, that's you. That sexual sin that you were involved in, you're like that rose. You're now ruined and stained and not pure. You are used. No great guy is ever going to really ever want you. It just plays over and over and over. Or it comes in, you know, you're a junkie, right? I mean, I know you're going to church and you're kind of going through the religious motions, but you know, you're really a no good worthless junkie. I mean, look at the string of heartache and pain and lies and deception and manipulation that you've left in your wake. And how many times do you keep promising to never only to what? That's right. Go back. You're, you're a junkie. 
And what I would suggest to you is Jesus, in this clear history, wants to stop all of those tapes. It's like, you know, the old-fashioned stop button on our, on our players. He, he wants to put a stop to those and say to you, no, you're not a felon. You are a child of the king. See, you have been chosen, adopted by God himself, and given a place in his household and his family. You share an inheritance with Jesus Christ, our Lord. You might have used to be a convicted felon, but that's not, your ident- that's not who you are now. You're a child of the king. And you are not used. You're not impure. You are a daughter of a king. You have been washed and forgiven with the price of Jesus himself. That's not who you are. You are a daughter of the king. Oh, no. You're not a junkie. See, I'm going to put an end to that tape right now because you have received the Holy Spirit and an invitation to sonship, which, is allow, which allows you to speak to the Father in the most endearing and intimate of terms to say to him, oh, you're my father, you're Abba. That's not who you are anymore. This is your new identity. And I find that sometimes we just need a new story. The one we keep telling ourselves is from an old chapter, and that isn't you anymore. You don't have to keep telling that story. You have a new one. Because of Jesus, the entire narrative trajectory of your life has now altered, and you don't have to go back to that anymore. And when Satan comes at you with these lies, which is what they are, by the way, because it's his native tongue and his native language, you must combat it with the truth. And it might be for you a challenge, especially at first as you're trying to move into this clear history that Jesus is providing for us. And when Satan comes around, he goes, oh, play and those tapes start playing in your mind again it will be a challenge for you to recognize no that's a lie that is not me anymore and you have to confront it with the truth in fact do you remember jesus's temptation in the wilderness do you remember the 40 days he was fasting and satan shows up and tempts him and hey jesus what about making this stone into i mean there's a whole story matthew chapter 4 luke chapter 4 you could read but here's what i'd say do you remember what jesus does to combat every one of satan's temptations remember what a strategy is it's scripture Like every time Satan comes at him with a temptation, Jesus comes back with scripture. He comes back and says, oh, no, listen. And then he'll just quote often from Deuteronomy to say, listen, I'm not falling for this. This is a lie. This is deception. And I know who I am. And so he quotes scripture back. And it might be for you when Satan starts to push play on those tapes and it goes back for you, you'll want to combat it with scripture. And let me give you a few. Just you might even want to write these down. It might be helpful to you. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17 Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And so you might just want to, when he says, this is who you are, you just go back to 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and say, oh no, that's the old creation. That's the old life, the new. I belong to Christ and therefore I am a new creation. And you just rest right in that reality. Or Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I think this is the third week in a row we've referred to it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But commit it to memory. This will help you in moments when Satan presses play on that tape. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation. Not a little bit, not a little disappointed. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you just say right back to that day, oh, no, I'm in Christ Jesus. And I don't have to live anymore under this condemnation. Or Galatians 2, verse 20 is a powerful one to me, too. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See what Paul's saying? Yeah, that's that old dude. Like, he's been, I have been crucified with Christ. And so the life that I now live, 
Like, it's for Christ. That's the old. This is the new. And it would be harder to memorize this, but at least meditate. Romans chapter 6, it's a little bit longer, verses 4 to 7. Paul says this, we, are, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live, what? A new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And to memorize some of these passages, and when you feel overwhelmed by Satan, to go back to condemnation and old ways of thinking, speak them out loud. Really, just, if you're in your car, you're starting to feel that, just speak it out loud. Oh, no. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's by doing this that I think is what we do when in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul will say, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See, that's what these scriptures do. It's the renewing of our mind. That's not me anymore. This is who I now am in Christ. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Reminding ourselves that we have a new identity. I'm a new creation. This will deny Satan's schemes to keep us from going back all the time. But I do want to say, sometimes it's easy for us to give Satan footholds. And I don't know if it's a technical military term that Paul uses in, Hebrew, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. The context is your anger, but he finishes it in verse 27 by saying, and do not give the devil a foothold. And I think sometimes it's possible that we give Satan a little foothold in our new life. Like, for example, we keep reminders all around us of our past. And by doing so, they kind of allow Satan to have just a little foothold to keep taking us back to them over and over and over again. It's sort of like a museum. Have you ever walked into a museum? And what's in museums? What you'll see typically all around are relics of the past. What you'll see are pictures that remind you of what? The past. There's artifacts, etc. And listen, I love museums and I love history. But when it comes to our old identities that are outside of Jesus, I'm not sure you need a bunch of pictures or a bunch of artifacts or a bunch of reminders around you. And for me, what that means is, and this will take discernment for you. I can't tell you what it will be for you. And it will take some discernment before the Lord. But if you're going to step into your new identity, you might have to cut off or at least severely restrict those who are trying to keep you in that old identity. Typically, because they have a need for you to be in that old identity and role that you used to play. You might have friends that you're going to have to say goodbye to because every time you're around them, they take you right back to your old identity. And they remind you of who you used to be. That's not you anymore. And if you really want to feel the power of family systems, watch and see what happens when you receive a new identity and then you play a different part and role within your family system. And what will be most confusing is that the new you is in every way better because it looks more like Jesus. But family systems love homeostasis. I don't know if you know what that word means. It's one of my favorites. Homeostasis. It's the state of being calm and static and predictable. Families love that. They depend on it. 
predictability becomes a big deal in family systems. And what happens is if you try to break out what is the norm or the predictability of your family system, watch the reaction that takes place even at times sabotaging it. And what I'm telling to you, what I'm saying to you is if you want to stay away from that old identity, that old life, you don't need to have relics and pictures. You're, with discernment, you've got to figure out who or what keeps taking me back. There might be context that you might not be able to walk into anymore. You used to be able to go into that restaurant when that was your old life, but when you walk in there now and have a seat at the bar, it just triggers all the things that you've left behind. You might not be able to go in there anymore. Or that particular friend's house that you knew every time you were there, this is, you might not be able to go back there anymore. Or, or those pictures, listen to me, it, it's, it's, and this will take discernment, but it goes even down to you might have to stop stalking your ex's social media pages because every time you do, it takes you back to, yeah, that's the old life that you're trying to move beyond. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that there's only one central figure who was ever painted as perfect. It's Jesus. That's it. Like from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, the Bible itself will tell us and refer to Jesus' as perfection and sinlessness, but everyone else, and I mean everyone else, is fraught with moral weakness. And let that phrase just sink in. I love that phrase, fraught with moral weakness. And what I love about the Bible is it doesn't seem to be concerned at all by trying to paint us any other picture. Any character that truly receives any airtime at all or any development, we find in some way is messed up. They all have sin. Every hero of our faith has a dark side that manifested in their life. And the Bible will oftentimes call it out. You know, Abraham was a liar who was always trying to save his own neck by having his wife sleep with other people. Did you know that? Jacob, you want to talk about deceit and dishonesty. He tricked everybody from his brother to his father to Laban. I mean, his name itself, Jacob, means deceit and heel grabber. Moses, don't get that guy mad. Hothead and a temper. Man, when it manifested. David, we know David, right? Bible tells he's a man after God's own heart, but we'll also see a good section of, and he's also an adulterer and a murderer. And Solomon, let's just say he had a problem with the ladies. That's, let's say. <laughs> all of the characters had a past. And they could all share their past. Uh, I used to be this, but then God intervened in my life, and, and now I'm this. And so when we ask ourselves the question, like this clear history, because when you say clear history, it has this idea of like, it is gone, like the past, there is no past. What do you do then with your past? Because I mean, I get to preach about, no, you got a clear history in Jesus. And you're like, yeah, that's great. But I still remember what happened in 2008. I mean, right. So what do we do with our past story? Do we just put it out of our mind? Do we never talk about it? What do we do with this? Here's what I'd suggest. Like, should you never talk about your past again, like that old identity outside of Jesus? Should you never mention it to anybody? I would say, maybe. I mean, I don't think you're under any obligation to meet someone for the very first time and immediately dive into, and I've been divorced three times and I have four kids that I never see anymore. I mean, I don't, you don't have to do that. I don't think you have to say, hi, my name is Ralph and I, I'm addicted to heroin and, al and alcohol. I mean, you just, I don't think that's necessary. And there may, at least for a season, be things about your past that you don't bring up and you don't relive in your mind because they're too fresh or too new or they're still too painful. And in this, I don't know what to say other than this will take prayer and discernment from the Holy Spirit as to what you need to do in regards to that. But I can at least say this. You don't have to celebrate your old life. 
Like when we look at our old identity outside of Jesus, it doesn't have to be a story of celebration for you. And sometimes I hear that too, right? It's kind of a, sometimes you hear even Christians starting to talk about their past. It's almost in a bragging sort of way. Like, man, you know how many women I used to sleep with? I, I had them all over the place. A little bit of Monica in my life, a little bit of Erica by my side, a little bit of Rita's, all I need, a little bit of Tina's, what I see. See what I did there? Anyone, anyone catch that? I was real proud of that when I wrote that down. Hey, it's mama number five. Okay. You know, but they tell their story about, they're bragging about how drunk they used to get and partying all the time and being involved in all sorts of immorality. And you kind of get the sense that they miss it, that they would want to go back, that I'm in Jesus now, and now he comes across as a buzzkill instead of the source of new and abundant life. And I would say you can speak of your past without celebrating it in such a way that it leaves in question whether you want to leave the old life to follow the abundant life of Jesus. But let me close with this in terms of possibilities. I think you actually can use your past and your history and your sins, failures, and regrets to glorify God. Like even in what it used to be like outside of Jesus, I think you could use that story to glorify God. So instead of letting Satan use your past like those mixtapes to sabotage you, you use your past to honor and bring glory to God. So how do we do this? What I'd point us to is the Apostle Paul, who does this on several occasions recorded in Scripture. He just tells his story. I used to be this. I encountered Jesus, and now I'm this. And some of you who might come from religious backgrounds might call this uh, everyone giving your testimony. Have you ever heard that phrase? Hey, give your testimony or, or give your witness. And I don't care what we call it. I like the phrase story best, but whatever you want to use is okay with me. But it's our account of what we used to be, our past. And now, thanks be to God, we are this. And it's a new identity. And so, for example, in Acts chapter 21, Paul is in Jerusalem and a kerfuffle breaks out with the Jews there in Jerusalem. And it's big brouhaha. I mean, really, they're beating him. Like, in the moment, they're beating him. And the Roman authorities hear about the ruckus going on in Jerusalem. So they send in troops. When the troops show up, he's in mid-beating. The Romans kind of get him off of Paul and they seize Paul. And Paul asks, hey, I'd like to make a speech to the people. Would you let me talk? And I'm thinking, if I were a Roman, like, nope, we're getting out of here right now. But they actually calm the crowd down. And then in Acts chapter 22, Paul begins with a speech. And it's interesting. In Acts 22, it says, it's an Aramaic, which means he's speaking the language of the people. And this is what he does in verse 3. He says, then Paul said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel, who was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I even persecuted the followers of this way to their death. That's referring to Christians arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. That's my old life. And about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. 
My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. See, what, this is Paul retelling a story. I used to be this, and then I encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and now I am that. And he'll go on to tell what else took place. And just even a few chapters later in Acts chapter 26, Paul will now be standing in front of King Agrippa. And the same thing, he gives his testimony, he gives his witness. He gives a story of this is what my old life used to be, but now I'm in Jesus. He'll say this in verse 4. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they're willing, that I conformed to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem on the authority of the chief priests. I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so opposed with persecuting, obsessed with persecuting them, that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord reply. Now get up and stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you and to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see what Paul does over and again? I used to be this. And I encountered Jesus, and now I'm this. And he'll say the same story in Galatians chapter 1. And you know what? Paul has a lot of garbage in his past. I mean, you want to talk about failures and regrets and sins. Paul had it. And he saw himself really as the least likely candidate to have received the calling he did because he considered him the worst. He'll say to Timothy in chapter 1 verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Listen to this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. Now, I know Doug apologized a little bit ago for saying but, but I want to resurrect it because it's a good word. But. But can be a powerful word. But breaks into a narrative and it redirects it. Like we're set up with a certain line of thought and then that word but takes us somewhere else. We're about to get a new line of thought. And so you might have experienced this in your relationships, right? You know I love you, right? And they say it like that and you're there waiting for What are you waiting for? But I need you to take out the trash or I'm going to murder you. I mean, that's what... I mean, that's what or your boss calls you into the office. Hey, listen, I know you did your best, and I know, I, I know you really tried, and this is good effort and all. 
but this stinks. <laughs> you got to do it all over again. I mean, whatever it is. Like, what I'm saying is, Paul has found his butt. What he says is, I was going in this direction in life, but Jesus showed up, and now I'm going in this direction. I want you to find your butt. And I was as proud as an adolescent teenage boy when I came up with this point here, but I want you to find your butt and attach your butt to your failures, sins, and regrets. That when Satan can try to restart that tape, And your friends can try to drag you back to that old identity, but now you have a butt. And it is the hinge that allows you to move forward from sin, failure, and regret. When it starts to play, you just go, but, and then remind yourself, Jesus. And in that, you get to use your story to glorify Jesus. Use it as a sign to all those who will listen to you that there is a God who is crazy in love with you and when you were at your most hopeless or desperate, he lifted you up and gave you a new life. Tell them, if you can, about the old life. You used to do this. You used to do that. You were involved in all sorts of things that you aren't proud of now, but, and then with a doxology in your heart, which is, by the way, what Paul moves to in 1 Timothy chapter 1, tell them, but Jesus... And then let their thoughts get refocused and redirected to Jesus. And maybe in so doing, their heart comes in contact with Jesus. Because what I've come to discover over many years, and this is as one who's a debater, arguments for Jesus that can be hotly debated aren't near as impressive as an argument with an experience. When you take an argument and attached to it somebody's experience, that's hard to come against. And what I'd say is your story is the experience. I encountered Jesus, and now I'm this. Why do I believe? Because I've encountered the resurrected Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. Uh, we're we're going to take a turn next week with a brand new series. It's called Love and Truth. I'm looking forward to it. It's how do you stand for Jesus in a polarized world. I don't know if you notice this, but we kind of live in a very polarized culture, like anything from religion to politics. And if you don't believe me, just check out your Facebook news feeds. You will see great polarization. So how do you stand up for Jesus in the midst of a duck dynasty controversy in a way that isn't so polarizing that it cuts off people in your life that need to hear your voice? And I say this only because um, this will be polarizing in itself, like just as I've prepared the messages. Uh, I'm almost finished with the two of them. Uh, I think, boy, this is a little controversial, but I think it will be helpful and good. I would like to pastorally say some things in regards to how do you stand up for Jesus in a way that uh, isn't as polarizing as it doesn't need to be. I mean, Jesus himself can stand on his own, and how do we enter into that in a way that... So that's where we're going next week. Truth and love. How do you stand in truth and love is where we're headed for the next two weeks. So I want to invite you to that. Uh, if you want, let's go ahead and stand, and then Jim will offer us a prayer of blessing and peace.